0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Rift Valley Institute. My name is Hannah Stogden. This is the third in a series of four podcasts commissioned by the World Bank to discuss the findings of their Somalia Urbanization Review. Today we're going to be talking about local governance in Somalia in the context of rapid urbanization. The review, which was published in 2021 by the World Bank, aims to facilitate a more informed dialogue between the government, private sector, civil society, development partners and other stakeholders on a more comprehensive urban strategy in Somalia. Today, our guests are Dr. Ken Menkhaus. He's a professor of political science at Davidson College, where he has taught since 1991. He specializes on the Horn of Africa, focusing primarily on development, conflict analysis, peace building, humanitarian response and political Islam. He has published over 50 articles and chapters on Somalia and the Horn of Africa, including If Mayors Ruled Somalia, Mikiko Watanabe is a Senior Urban Specialist at the World Bank, working on local governance, service delivery and forced displacement. Mikiko led the Somalia Urbanization Review and currently manages the Somalia and South Sudan urban portfolio and is currently based in Nairobi. She holds an MA in Public Policy from JFK School of Governance at Harvard University in the USA. Olivia Daoust is a senior Urban Economist with the World Bank, working on issues related to the economics of urbanization, territorial development, and conflict and fragility. She has led and contributed to several analytical products focusing on the drivers of, and impediments to, cities, productivity, and livability in Africa, including the flagship report, Africa Cities, Opening Doors to the World. Olivia has a doctorate from the European Centre for Advanced Research in Economics and Statistics at the Solvay School of Economics and Management in Brussels. Thanks for joining us as we delve further into the findings of that review. Ken, Mikiko Olivia, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us. Ken, can I start by asking you then, you study issues of local governance in Somalia, but you also explore local urban governments from a comparative perspective what can we learn from other countries about opportunities and challenges facing municipal governments in fragile states?
2: Well, thanks for that question. The The issue of, of local and municipal governance is nested in a broader trend of political devolution that we've seen globally. And that, that trend of political devolution is informed by a principle, we give it a fancy academic name called the principle of subsidiarity. Basically, the idea is that policy should be devolved to the lowest appropriate level of society. The key here is uh, the word appropriate. Some policy issues are clearly not appropriate for the local level. Uh, Issues related to foreign policy, defense, monetary policy all have to be at the national level. But other policies can and should be devolved uh, to the local level. And that's going to vary from place to place. Now, why is that? Uh, For a variety of reasons. One is accountability. Local leaders are more accountable to local constituencies when they live much closer to them. Uh, Second, local knowledge is greater on local problems so that policies and service delivery uh, can be adapted to the local context, not imposed like a boilerplate. Uh, Often, local government is more legitimate in the eyes of the community than is a distant national government. Um, and, And some... Not all, but some local service delivery issues are just less politically fraught. Uh, Mayors deal with a lot of practical issues around the world. Uh, Literally, you know, who's picking up the trash? And that kind of practical, pragmatic, get the job done set of issues is often very promising at the local level and attracts sometimes really committed leaders uh, who are more committed to uh, getting things done for their local community than they are, say, of power-seeking or wealth-seeking. There are some other reasons that cities are promising uh, areas for good governance, especially in countries emerging from conflict. They are sites of commerce and commercial exchange that brings business people together across conflict lines uh, with shared interest in doing business together. Uh, They can be zones of cosmopolitanism where different ethnic groups, tribes, clans, religious groups come together and learn to live together, trust one another, rebuild trust Their site for employment generation and investment, and as a result, globally there's been a good deal of optimism about the prospects for municipal and local governance. There's a famous book that was written a number of years ago, uh, called "If Mayors Ruled the World," that uh, essentially argued that that kind of get the job done, pragmatic approach to core service delivery issues uh, that are at the heart of most citizens' concerns are often best done at the municipal level.
0: Uh Aha, Ken. So. Municipal governance in fragile states does offer a lot of promise, yet we also know that there are concerns about town and city level governance. Ken, what are your main worries?
2: Well, municipal and local governance is by no means a panacea. They are still prone to uh, corruption and mismanagement. Cities, especially cities emerging from war zones, uh, can be contested by different ethnic groups and become zones of ethno-hegemony. They can be places where some citizens based on their identity, can be disenfranchised essentially. People in some cities saying you don't belong here or you're a guest with limited rights and that can create conflict. Political devolution is in some places being misinterpreted, not as a way of bringing power to the local level, but of creating ethnic enclaves. And that's very problematic. And that's happening around the world. Capacity can be a problem in some, especially some smaller, more remote cities that don't attract uh, the kind of skill set that's needed to run a city. Uh, And then, of course, we've got the the global problems of very rapid urban growth that puts huge strains on leadership and services and infrastructure, uh, issues related to financing, uh, land disputes that are endemic as property values rise that can overwhelm even really well-intentioned, committed mayors. And uh, in some fragile states, of course, cities are the repository of massive numbers of internally displaced persons, which just adds still more to the challenge of governing a city well.
0: Another question that looms large when talking about urban management in Somalia is the affordability of the institutional structure that the current government, Somalia, and development partners are promoting, for example. Federal member states and state level government have been created, and now there's a push to strengthen district governments which function as de facto municipal governments and establish district councils. Mikiko, can you tell us whether you think we're headed in the right direction?
1: Uh, thanks, Hannah. It is true that accountability can be higher at the municipal or district level as decision making is closest to its constituents, and like Ken said you know given the proximity municipal district governments can often be perceived as more legitimate in the eyes of the community than a distant central government, for example after all, municipal governments are supposedly the frontline service delivery institution. having said that, the current Somali government does not have the resources and are not likely to have any in the near future to meet the basic health, education, or security needs. Therefore, creating local governance structures across the country is not affordable or sustainable. Just to give you an example, first of all, the federal government itself is heavily funded by external funding. In 2019, reliance on external grants was 32%. The next year, it increased to 57%, most likely due to COVID. And then the second tier, the federal member state governments are very reliant on fiscal transfers from the federal government. The FMS or the federal member state without operational ports have an average of about US $5 million of revenue a year. And over 75% of this is from the fiscal transfer from the federal government. Now, finally, getting to the third tier, there are no legal frameworks that dictate fiscal transfers from the member state level to the municipal or district governments. So they are reliant on ad hoc transfers, donor funding, and meager own source revenues, such as road user taxes, business licenses, property taxes, or you know formal or informal checkpoints that they use. And like Ken said, their capacity is also very weak at the district level. So the key is then to appreciate this regional variation that exists across Somalia and not take a cookie cutter approach. So where district governments and councils already exist, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what is their role? How can it be strengthened going forward? And where district governments and councils don't yet exist, the question we should be asking is, are they really needed at this point in time? And if so, how can we sustain them? Because what the gear framework for local governance estimates that it will cost about $1.3 million per district to establish a local council. Now, in the southern um, newer states, this would entail about 55 districts, costing about $72 million just to set up the district councils. Now how much it would cost to sustain them is another question. So in light of the fiscal constraints, it seems that we should focus on strengthening the district governance functionality in key urban areas and perhaps border towns, but try not to roll them out in smaller rural areas.
0: Lastly then, to circle back to the role of local governments and help inform their priorities given their budgeting capacity, Olivia, what can you tell us about any ready-to-use tools that World Bank has? Thanks, Anna. Let me tell
3: you about one very accessible tool that we've been using and that's been very useful. New technologies, including very easy to use geospatial data and information collection tools to, for example, pinpoint streets, bus stops or water taps, can be actually tapped into. And these provide very low-cost solution that will support decision-making through the involvement of all stakeholders from local government, civil society, and the private sector. And that really supports the credibility and accountability of urban government that Ken and Makiko have been discussing previously. One example is the Open Cities Project, which was developed and applied in collaboration between the World Bank and the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery, which aims at providing open data to help inform planning for more resilient and sustainable cities. Open Cities' geographical focus so far has been Africa and South Asia, where the challenges of urban population growth and vulnerability has been growing rapidly. To manage urban growth and strengthen cities' resilience to hazards and impact of climate change, local governments really require details, up-to-date geographical data of the built environment, the key infrastructure and risk. And for example, these can play a role in demarcating boundaries, recording unregistered lands and resolving certain types of disputes, such as those over boundaries. They could also be complemented by community mapping using satellite or drone imagery to enhance cadastres and registries and assess informality in peri-urban areas and IDP settlements. All the information is then compiled in an open spatial database that includes as well tools to assist with the use of the information for prioritizing, sequencing, and importantly, coordinating interventions. At the same time, it's going to boost the capacity of municipal staff, community leaders, and students in the use of digital skills, such as in cartography, data collection, and analysis. And it's going to help them to use open data to make informed decisions on key urban management questions. The flexibility of the approach allows to start with very simple things or very small areas and further integrate incoming data, from exploratory walks around neighborhoods and focus groups with residents who can share their perception of the risk in their neighborhoods and living spaces, to more complex issues such as land registers and recording transactions. Such an initiative offers a potential support to local capacity building and institutional development that are really necessary for designing and implementing evidence-driven urban resilience interventions and such in a participatory way.
0: Olivia, it's great to hear about those useful tools and the importance of evidence-driven interventions. From our discussants then, it seems to be the case that if we want to build and nurture good governance in Somalia, cities are a good place to start. Accountability and legitimacy will be key, we know, but so will providing urban government with the necessary information, capacity and finance to deliver on their mandate, as well as setting up systems to ensure coordination with other levels of government, so that institutions evolve from competing against one another to cooperating and filling each other's gaps. We look forward to continuing this conversation and thanks to Makiko, Ken and Olivia for their valuable contributions today.
1: Thank you for having us, Hannah. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks very much, Hannah. That was a
3: great discussion.
0: Thanks for listening. This is the third of four episodes exploring the World Bank Somalia Urbanization Review. This podcast was made possible by the World Bank in collaboration with the Rift Valley Institute. It was produced by Ida Holly Namby and Mae Francis. Please leave a comment, a rating or a review, and please join us again next time.